You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today's episode is going to be really informative for you. It's We're going to be talking about something that I'm sure many of you have heard about, and that's avian flu. We are fortunate to have joining us today an expert on this particular issue, Dr. Dave Stalneck, University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine and Director of the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned right there at the outset, avian flu, avian influenza is an issue that is all over the headlines for people that are are interested in birds, waterfowl, uh, and poultry operations. It's something that's becoming sort of a a headline news item and has over the past few months. It's not an area of expertise for our Ducks Unlimited staff. You know, we're not disease experts. And like we do on so many of the topics that we discuss here on the podcast, we want to bring in the actual experts, the people that are doing the science, doing the research on a on an issue so that our listeners can hear directly from those folks. And that's you in this case. So we're going to go through a list of questions here, and we're going to start right at the top with the simple, uh, the most basic one for people that may need a little bit of a primer on this. What is avian influenza? Okay, avian, avian influenza is the disease that is caused by type A influenza viruses, okay? And uh, these these viruses are normally found in waterfowl. Waterfowl are the reservoir. It's where where all influenza viruses originally evolved from, even the ones that humans had. So the type of virus that we're seeing right now in birds is actually the same type of virus, a different virus, but the same type of virus that we see in our seasonal influenza outbreaks in, in, in humans. And occasionally these things, as far as the poultry part of it, occasionally these things spill out and cause disease in poultry. And so these influenza viruses are naturally occurring. They're circulating in waterfowl every year, if I'm understanding things correctly. Why don't we see an issue, why don't, why don't we see this issue becoming as visible every single year as it is this year? What's the what's the difference there from one year to the next? Yeah, the, the difference is really the capability of, of these viruses to cause disease. They're, they're all different, okay? And that's kind of the important thing to take home. Um, the viruses that normally circulate in waterfowl do not to cause any disease in waterfowl. It's actually just a, a perfect long-term evolutionary thing where, where the, the virus and the ducks get along just fine. Uh, it's, it's when, it's literally when they kind of mutate and genetically change. Uh, and this most often happens in poultry populations where they become, path, you know, uh, where they can actually cause some disease. And in the specific case we have today, this is a virus that has gone through probably 20 
probably 20, over 20 years of evolution bouncing back and forth between poultry populations and waterfowl populations. And in that process, it has changed and become more virulent, more capable of actually causing disease. So this, this, this virus we have right now is really an anomaly. It's not the normal influenza virus, viruses that we have circulating in wild waterfowl. So these mutations that you talk about, is that process any different from what we have all heard so much about with the coronavirus, having gone through a Delta strain, an Omicron uh, uh, strain? Is that basically the same type of mutational process that we're talking about here? It's, it's, it pretty much is exactly the same thing, where we, we have point mutations on the genome, and they change over time. And they're basically adapting to new hosts. They're adapting to the immune response of the host. And their uh, influence is RNA virus. It can change very, very rapidly. Now, influenza has another, another trick up its sleeve for rapid changing. And with influenza viruses, the genome, the genetic material, is segmented. So it's sort of a similar situation that we have, have in our cells where we have individual chromosomes. And basically, these things can also reassort. So we can get really broad changes in broad genetic changes. And in the influenza circles, what, what we refer to it as one is genetic drift. And that's when you have point mutations. And the other is genetic shift. And that's when you have a whole segment, genome segment, new one introduced into the virus. You're bringing back memories, sometimes fearful memories of my genetics class in uh, in, in college, in graduate school. That's exactly so, the way to think about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. So what you're talking about here with mutations uh, along the genome, then producing differences in the, the pathogenicity, the tr- maybe the transmissibility of these different viral strains, as we've, as you've confirmed it's it's no different from what we've heard about with the coronavirus and, and those mutations. Within within this kind of avian flu conversation, we're hearing a lot about highly pathogenic and low path low pathogenic. High path or low path are other short forms of that. Can you explain that a little bit? It's related to the mutations that we're talking about here, right? And what are we dealing with here this year? Yeah, this 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 is a question that comes up all the time. It's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about high path and low path. Um, Actually, what it refers to is the ability to cause disease in chickens, okay? And and it's it's, it's sort of a measure of the potential impacts of a virus if it gets into poultry populations. And high path has a high mortality rate, low path. It may be subclinical. You may not see anything in there. But that's really the difference, okay? And it, it's, it's funny, we, we, this is when we had bird flu and they were talking about high path. It really has nothing to do with human health. And it actually has nothing to do with, with waterfowl health. The fact of the matter is, is that not all high path viruses will cause disease in poultry. But the one that we have that was introduced, it obviously does in, 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 uh, in not poultry, but in wild ducks and in, in other birds. Yeah, you and I talked about this a few weeks ago where I don't know if we have enough data yet to really speak to how much more pathogenic uh, this particular virus is for wild waterfowl. But it certainly, and you can tell us if we have, if we're starting to get data to confirm that yet. But when we spoke a few weeks ago, you and I were both like, it certainly feels different. Like this one has a higher mortality rate and than, than maybe some of the past ones. Are we still trending in that direction? Is, we still think this is different. It, 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 it 
probably is different. It's definitely different. It's definitely different than the low path viruses. But what's interesting, you know, these viruses, uh, this is one thing that, that's, that's actually looked at pretty quickly when we get a new virus in, in will it affect chickens. But a lot of our colleagues at USDA will also do duck challenges. And even within the genetic, even, even within the, 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 the viruses that, that originally in the goose guan dong viruses that were the historic precursor of this virus, and all the ones that have came out after this, the whole evolutionary process, it changes pretty dramatically in whether they can kill. You can't make an assumption that, yes, this, they all do because they're pretty much all different. Dave, we'll come back to some of these, uh, some other, other questions that I have right now um, that I know a lot of people are, are going to want us to talk about, such as what is this going to mean for waterfowl populations and human health risk and things of that nature. We'll get to those in a minute. But I want to reflect a little bit on why this is important. You talked about the high path and low path relating to the uh, its effect on poultry operations, commercial poultry operations. And so given what you said about this is naturally occurring, wild waterfowl or a natural reservoir for this, and during most years, there's no major concern. We usually don't see even see the effects of it. But it's within the poultry industry that this is really, really a concern, right? I, I did a little bit of research where it's, if, if this number is correct, last time we saw a significant outbreak here in the U.S., which would have been about 2015, there were over $3 billion in losses for commercial poultry in the U.S. Is that, is that the primary kind of concern when we see these type of outbreaks? They're, they're actually, historically, yes. Historically, that is the primary concern. Um, I think we need to look at what has happened with this virus from when it was first, really, the, the precursors were discovered in the late 1990s to present. And what, is, what has happened, it started out as strictly, you know, this is going to be an issue with poultry. And if you remember the bird flu business, there were human cases, too, and they were concerned about that. So they were the two big priorities, and wildlife health was not even considered, okay? That changed in about 2002, and what happened in 2002 is they had an outbreak in a zoological collection in Hong Kong, and to my knowledge, that was really the first indication that, wow, this, this, these viruses can kill wild birds too, so maybe we should start thinking about wildlife health on top of that, and then about 2005, it, it actually spilled out even to a greater extent in China, in Mongolia, and a lot of, like, bar-headed geese, for example, had a lot of mortality associated with it. And it started spilling out into the wild waterfowl populations. And then about 2015, or 2000, late 2000s, I guess, it, it start, they started showing up in Europe, and pretty much now is showing up on an annual basis. And it kind of led us all to think about this a little, little more. And it causes quite a bit of waterfowl and, and other bird mortality there annually. And it, it started, we started thinking about this. And we really need to think about this in three different ways at the same time. You know, number one, is it affecting wildlife populations? Number two, is it, what, what's it going to do to poultry operations? Because it is a significant disease there and a really important disease. And then there's the public health aspect that sort of lingers on the horizon. And so we really, as far as hosts go, there's, there's a lot of host range here that, that we need, need to consider. Dave, as far as you're aware, have there been any, have there been any examples or records of this, uh, of avian flu 
causing significant population level effects in wild bird populations? Uh, no. And, and But the, the jury is kind of out here. We're kind of looking at where we're going to go with this thing. And uh, right now, the, the, the reported waterfowl mortality, the reported wild bird mortality, uh, we, we get, you know, we, when we're in the wildlife health arena, we kind of worry about any mortality or morbidity. We take it all seriously. But it's sort of, it's sort of been random, unpredictable, and there's been die, large die-offs where hundreds of birds have died, but it hasn't been something that was repeated the next year. It sort of comes, it sort of goes. And at this point in time, I don't think any of us can really explain these outbreaks and why they occur in species X one year and species Y the next year and what's, what's going on. But some of the outbreaks, you know, population effects, probably not. But large outbreaks involving thousands of birds, probably yes. Yeah, Dave, there was the <clears throat> one of the more notable out, or mortality events that we saw earlier this year was with SCOP uh, in Florida. I forget what the total number there was. I don't know if it was over. Do you have that number? Was it over a thousand? It was in the hundreds at least. Yeah, it was over a thousand. And, and actually, the really kind of the important thing, like SCOP are probably pretty visible rafting up with carcasses and stuff. But, you know, the one thing, always take these, these numbers with a grain of salt. Because for every one you're seeing, there's probably, there may be two or three more that you're not. So they're always an underestimate. But that's the biggest one, at least on the East Coast. I think there was some mortality associated with some Canada geese in the Northeast. I'm not, I don't have the numbers for those. But at least in the Southeast, that was, that was the big one involving waterfowl for sure. And then, of course, we've heard reports of, of dead or dying snow geese, Ross's geese, as they're migrating up this spring through the Mississippi and Central Flyway. I, and, of course, snow geese are big, white, highly visible birds. And so it, for a number of reasons, it makes sense. They're also very gregarious. So it makes sense for a number of reasons that we would see um, an apparent uh, kind of higher um, prevalence rate, at least, you know, visibly in terms of the mortality that we're seeing for that particular group of species, right? Right. And uh, that's one thing, again, from the European experience, that's that's a little different. We, we generally associate flu with ducks, but this, this latest high path virus, there seems to be a lot of geese involvement. Uh, in Europe, it's been barnacle geese, I think pink-footed geese, and that is pretty atypical for, for, for flu. So something, it, it's something, again, to keep our eyes on to see what's going on. What do we know about the method of transmission uh, from one bird to the next? How does that happen? Okay, when, when, a, when a bird's in, in, infected, it really sheds the virus from both ends. Uh, it, it, it's, it's in the oral cavity and, and comes out that end. But probably the most important from a transmission standpoint, it's in the feces. Okay, and these viruses persist in water for a long time period of time. And I mean, it, it's to the point where if the water is really cold, they can persist probably for months, maybe years in, in, in water. And it's, it really is kind of, a, it's kind of an ingenious transmission mechanism for ducks, if you think about it, because the habitat kind of connects everybody, you know, and, and a, a duck, an infected duck could land, actually excrete the virus in a body of water, take off, and a week later still infect the next duck. So it really connects everything. It's a very efficient transmission mechanism. Is there any indication that it's 
it's airborne. And I don't ask that from the perspective of it leading to greater transmission necessarily among waterfowl because the motor transmission you just described would be super effective. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. If because ducks are foraging in the water and if the water's contaminated, geese, the same thing. But I'm just, I'm starting to get to my next question about risk to humans. And so that leads me to think about anything we know on whether it would be uh, airborne. Okay. With, with the, with the human influences, a, ca- a counterpart of this, airborne transmission is the, is the mechanism. Okay. And the, actually the big jump that one of these viruses need to, needs to make to make it to a human population, become a public health issue is effective aerosol transmission, okay? That's, that's the barrier that keeps us safe from these viruses that are normally circulating in waterfowl. And uh, this one, this, these viruses, these, this lineage of viruses that we have, they don't do that, okay? So uh, if, a, if a human is infected, they, they can get infected that way, but it's very, very, very inefficient, okay? And it, it would take probably a lot of virus and a lot of really close contact to, to make it go that way. And it probably, even if someone was infected that way, it probably it would not go from that person to the next person, okay? It'd be a, sort of a dead end. If we're talking about humans, I would not be concerned with contact with the water. The reason being is that probably the, probably the, the concentration of virus in that water is probably too low to really infect people. I mean, if you were drinking gallons of it, I might consider it it a little differently, but most people don't do that. Uh, With humans, and actually the human risk for exposure to these viruses would be highest in actually handling an infected duck, okay? And you would have to, you could, it probably infect yourself. You can infect yourself orally. You know, a, a dead duck, there's, there's, there's feces, and, and feces have a, a high concentration. And we've been doing some work actually looking at the distribution in ducks, and we might want to talk about this a little little later, but um, the viscera has pretty much a high, with this particular... Yeah, we're talking about the organs. The organs have, has, have, have a much higher concentration than like the external part. Okay, so that that's another thing. So it really matters what you come in contact with also. Do we know anything about the, the severity of disease that a human could likely get from this if they were exposed, if they yeah. if, if, if things happen such that they did get exposed to uh, to the virus? Okay, and we really need to talk about the specific virus, the specific lineage of virus we have in North America right now. And the, in Europe, they have a lot of experience with this one in waterfowl. So there, we have some data to look at as far as human risk and, and all that sort of thing. In Europe, there, I think, has been one human case with this particular virus, all right? And this was associated not with someone handling waterfowl, but someone in close contact with infected poultry. Okay, since I talked to you, we've had a human case in the United States, and just like in Europe, it was associated with somebody depopulating 
an infected poultry flock. And if you kind of think about the exposure related to being in an environment, an enclosed environment with 20,000 infected chickens or whatever, it's, it's pretty easy to see that the risk of handling one duck may not be that great. Okay? It's something we need to be aware of, but probably not that great. In both cases, disease was extremely mild and it was nothing, nothing really serious. And that's where I was really wanting to get to. So even in those cases where we know there to be an infection in humans, the symptoms have been mild. And which leads me to wonder if maybe there, there is infection that has occurred among humans. We're not testing for this in humans, right, to see if we have antibodies for it. So it, we, there could be a number of us that have been infected and just not even know about it. We should all sort of be familiar with that because of our experience with the coronavirus over the past couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'll give you, actually, people have looked at that with our low path viruses. And there's been several studies uh, in the past where they've actually looked at wildlife biologists who have banded literally tens of thousands of birds, right? And they were banding these birds at a period prevalence was really high. And there is absolutely no indication of significant spillover related to that. Uh, I think, you know, out of hundreds and hundreds of people they've looked at, they may have found antibodies to one, one type of influence in, in one person. It's, it's really limited. So risk-wise, it, it, it doesn't seem to be a, a, a really major thing. Talking also about spillover in sort of another group of animals, ones that are near and dear to many to many of our hearts, people that are listening to this episode certainly, or this this podcast, uh, retrievers, our dogs, our our pet, our cats, any other kind of household pet. What do we know about potential transmission to our pets? Uh, dogs and cats both can get flu, and there's some strains of flus that that actually infect dogs or, or maintained in dogs. Uh, but I know of no real data that suggests that retrievers would be infected with influenza viruses. And it's, they certainly would be detected if they cause disease. And uh, so I, I think, again, the risk is, 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 is really low if it exists at all. I remember reading something uh, a couple of weeks ago as I'm studying up on avian, uh, avian influenza, and uh, I found a paper that referenced infection in cats, uh, some small number of cats. The belief is that they would have acquired that by, by eating birds, infected birds outside. Is that right? Did I remember that correctly? Yeah, there was a case. I don't know if we're talking about the same case, but there was a, a, a case where it was an H7 virus that got into a, I think it was a feral cat colony or, or something or another, and, and pretty much set up shop there. Uh, but I think, again, I think it was a dead end. I don't think it, it's really as persistent. The, the thing about a lot of these viruses is experimentally, you can pretty much infect anything with these viruses. We we have done actually cats have been experimentally infected with a lot of the a lot of the, the, the wild bird strains or so the low bat viruses. But they don't seem there must be a, a, a transmission block there or something where they normally just they, they just normally do not get exposed. Uh, and if they do get exposed, it's a dead end. It doesn't transmit to other cats. And the other thing is if you think about cats feeding on birds, they're kind of not feeding on the right kind of birds. And, and, and actually, like, you know, the small the songbirds and that sort of thing, they really are not involved in this. I so see. even low path viruses. So it, it's unless, unless, unless you've got a, a cat that's attacked with a goose or a duck or something, I, I think it's, they're pretty separate from the system. That leads me to the other question that I've heard people ask about. I've seen some discussion online about this, and that is 
whether people should take down their backyard bird feeders. You mentioned that this virus isn't known to be, that, that those species of birds that will most commonly visit our backyard bird feeders are not, are not uh, the ones with which this virus is is most associated with. Can you speak to that a little bit? I'm not necessarily asking you to provide guidance on whether people should or shouldn't take down their bird feeders, but what we what do we know about the risk that it poses in those particular situations? Okay, we, we've looked at this with low path viruses, and we've actually did a uh, we had a graduate student here that that did a review of everything that's been published on influenza in songbirds mainly passeriform songbirds. And uh, there's nothing there. I mean, there's been a few viruses recovered, but we're talking about maybe, you know, maybe 100 out of 30,000 tests. And a lot of these are associated with birds that were sampled or had affected poultry. So it's even less than that. Yeah. Um, so really, the, those types of birds, uh, and I think there were about 800 species actually associated with those, those studies. Those kind of birds normally are not infected with flu. Now, with the high-path flu viruses, there have been some detected, again, in songbirds, sparrows, that sort of thing, associated with poultry houses. It will spill out into them. Um, the only really birds outside of waterfowl, and you won't see these, if, if a bird is scavenging, such as a crow or a magpie, okay, they can get infected. They're scavenging on a duck. But that, that's, that's the way it would spill out from, from waterfowl populations into other groups of Birds. Do you think that do you think that low infection rate in in passerines and maybe some of the other uh, species of birds is related to the primary mode of transmission, kind of being waterborne, as we've talked about? And then those, uh, you know, the, the passerines aren't water dwelling birds. Is that the case? And if so, it makes me wonder about the prevalence in, let's say, shorebirds. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the case. And uh, the prevalence in shorebirds, it's interesting. We're actually going to start our shorebird work in about two weeks on the Atlantic coast. And we've been surveying shorebird populations for about 20 years. Um, with shorebirds, uh, we're not really sure. The transmission mechanism may be a little different. And because, uh, you know, they're, they're in water, but a lot of times they're feeding on beaches and that sort of thing. And large bodies of water where you would get dilution and that sort of thing. At Delaware Bay, one of the things that's interesting there is just the concentrations that you get. Uh, we work at Delaware Bay with, uh, it was, we actually work with banders up there. And what shorebirds are doing right now, obviously, is just putting on as much weight as they possibly can to make the trip to the Arctic debris. That's what, that's what they're doing. And they, they kind of key in on these special sites. At Delaware Bay, they're feeding on horseshoe crab eggs, and they actually time it with the spawn, which is amazing. But uh, the, the, the densities that you see, I mean, they're inches apart. And there's thousands of them, tens of thousands of them. And in that case, it may be contact, it may be just direct fecal oral. I mean, they're feeding in the exact places they're defecating, you know. But it, 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 they, they're obviously, every year during this time, we see a little flu outbreak in there, a bad flu outbreak. So next question that makes me think about is how long, what do we know about how long from the point of infection or time of infection to when symptoms show up? And then we see mortality in the case of a, of a particular virus that would cause mortality. Okay, this, it's, it's, it's somewhat variable. But generally, if you're going to see disease, and we're talking about ducks here, you will see something happening. Okay, you first find the virus. You, first, you'll deter, you can determine they're infected in two days. 
you can actually start retrieving virus routinely from both oral swabs and from the cloaca. If they get disease, it probably occur fairly quickly. Uh, probably, I'm guessing maybe three or four days after that. Okay, so it, it actually can occur, occur relatively, and it's going to depend on a lot of different things. And and this is one of the complex things with uh, with waterfowl population. Sort of relates to all that low path that's out there, because they're related viruses, right? They're different forms of the same influenza virus, and you do get some kind of immunity associated with that, and maybe partial immunity. So if you had this partial immunity, you may have a delayed onset of these things. You may not actually have, it may not go to death. It may just be more morbidity or they may be subclinical. So you have to kind of look at the whole system here and it gets, it gets, it gets somewhat complicated. How would you describe the symptoms? What are the primary symptoms, I guess I should say, of an infected bird? It, with waterfowl, it's quite easy. They'll get neurologic signs. I mean, they'll have trouble walking. They'll swim in circles. They're, you know, have trouble just keeping their necks. It, it's, it, it's pretty classic neurologic signs that you see in waterfowl. Probably similar to botulism. It's probably the same type of, of clinical signs. And then I guess a question related to that would be, what do we know about the mortality rate? Is I'm, I'm guessing this is a situation where a bird could get the virus and not die. You know, what do we know about the mortality rate uh, for, for wild waterfowl at this point? This, this is an open question right now, and, and that's the trouble. Right now, what we have are some kind of crude estimates of mortality. So you're getting back to our example of a thousand birds in Florida, right? Thousand skull, and that's where it gets really, really difficult. Uh, as far as the mortality that we're seeing, we have list of dead birds, but there, there's no context to it, and that information will be be coming. I mean, everyone is going, okay, we need to get that information, but right now, I don't think we really have good a good handle on infection rates, and we do not have a good handle on mortality rates. What did we learn from any past experience with the uh, high path avian influenza? I, I know there was a lot of surveillance. There was a lot of research done. The last time we had an encounter, had an outbreak, what did we learn about the infection rate and the mortality rate from that particular occurrence? You know, I, I think one of the things that, that we need to, it's difficult to compare everything with, with that particular outbreak. Because if you remember, it started in the wintertime. And by June, it was pretty much gone. I think there were some singleton cases after that for maybe a year after that. But it was, even with that one, it's difficult to actually understand what the prevalence of infection was in those populations. Uh, and, but I think everybody kind of agrees that it was relatively low. Now, the thing about it is, is that based on what we know about low path inf influenza, we would expect a low prevalence at that season. And with that outbreak, that's the only season we have to go on, okay? So we're kind of holding our breath to see what would happen here. Um, typically with low path influenza, the high prevalence season is associated with late summer, early fall. Now, whether this particular virus will show up during that period, we don't know. And by prevalence, just to make sure we define a term here, prevalence, we're really talking about the percentage of the population that is infected. Right. Exactly. And at that, at that time, like we, we, you know, we do a lot of work in Minnesota. Or we have done a lot of work in Minnesota. And during we do most of our sampling in September, which is on probably the downside of, of, of the, the trend there. But we routine, routinely uh, detect influenza in you know, 20 percent, 25 percent of the ducks we sample. There is in the literature 
uh, with work that's been done in, in, in Canada, in Alberta, by St. Jude's Children's Hospital. They've been doing it for years. I've seen prevalence at that time up to 40%. So a large number of ducks are infected. What you need to understand, and this is another tricky thing about influenza, is that there are a lot of different subtypes, okay? So this is the total. This is, this is all those subtypes combined into one. And whether the H5 subtype, which is the one we're talking about here, will be a dominant member of that, we don't know. And in this case, we really need to know specific prevalence of this one virus, not influenza as a whole. So many of the things that you're talking about, so many of the terms you're using are things that we've heard about with the coronavirus. I've said that, to, I think this third, probably third time I've referenced it, but I can't help but reflect back on all that we've learned and all that we've heard over the past two years. And it's the same, it's the same type of study, the same type of terminology, the same type of sort of disease parameters that we're trying to understand. Although in, in the case you described, although the, the prevalence, the percentage of the population that you detected that virus in, in that particular example was 40%, the mortality rate probably was way lower, right? Correct. Yeah. And so the same thing that we're trying to understand with the coronavirus is, is, is at play with this. Yeah. Actually, with the low passive viruses, the mortality rate was zero. Zero. Okay. Yeah. And so that is, that's important because that determines what we, how we identify, how we characterize the relative risk of a particular outbreak, right? The risk to wild populations, the risk to humans, and then of course, uh, risk to poultry operations falls into, into a different category there. But yeah, that's, that, that's what's important for a lot of the decision-making that occurs as a result of the science that you and a lot of your colleagues are, are developing on this particular issue. So, Dave, I think we're at a good point to wrap up this particular episode. When we started this, you, before we began to, to record, I said we might split this into a couple episodes depending on how much uh, information we get, how much you and I start talking about the nuances of this. And so here we are at about the 35-minute mark. And so we're going uh, gonna to pause. We're going to take our breath close out this episode, and then have a few more questions for you that we'll include on a, on a follow-up episode. Does that sound good to you? That sounds good. Thank you, Dave. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Dave Stalneck with the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine and the director of the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does with these episodes, and we thank you, the listener, for joining us and for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.